Fred and Maribou made a clumsy imitation of a Fretch, of a Fretch, of a Fretchling from the planet Fretch. Lure love, I can't get enough. Got a space in my tackle box, just got to fill it up. Lure love, I can't ever stop. Don't got a basement, got an underground tackle shop. Hello and welcome to the Lure Love Podcast. I am your host Lucy the Luramatic Computer, and I am here with my flesh-bound Fisher Dude co-hosts, John, Crappy Hippie King, and Tim, Tackle Box Beat. And we are all here to talk about fishing lures. Fishing lures, new and old. Fishing lures, classic and gimmick. Fishing lures we fish with, test, and would like to try someday. All this to get to one simple question. Why buy one lure when you can buy 103? Hey, man, where's Lucy? She's out fishing. Without us? Where? Down at the neighborhood pond I call the test pond. She'll be fine. It's just a minute's walk from here. Man, are you afraid she'll get snatched? I mean, she's just a little thing after all. We had a long talk when she drove us to Shields for our flu-flu jigs. She wants to get out more, and both of us are too busy to take her out fishing as much as she wants to go. Well, I don't know about this at all. I mean, come on, Tim, I'm worried already. She's just a wee little thing. I mean, she's only like two feet tall. Yeah, she's more like a rebellious tween. She gave me the, why did you give me a mobility system just so I could circle around some tackle shop all day? I couldn't argue. I've raised four kids. There's no escaping that logic. Well, yeah, I see what you mean there. But I mean, you know, Sarah would have said the same thing, but I I still worry about her. I'm still worried that someone might try and grab her. I mean, I'm not talking about criminals, but just but someone who wants to kidnap her and force her to do a podcast, say on floor cleaners or the Cardassians. I I don't know which one would be worst. I'm going to go get her, Tim. I'm going to go get her. Now, 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 wait a minute, pod bro. Tim, get out of my way. I I am absolutely freaking out here. Crappy hippie, please hear me out. First, let's calm down. Grab a beer. Okay. You have until we finish these. Now, you don't think I would send her out by herself without backup, do you? Well, no, I guess not. Not only does she have a dedicated connection to our cell phones, but she can call the police or whoever she needs in a fraction of a second. Yeah, I, I suppose. And add to that the fact that she can enter your mind directly even when you're back in Kansas. Well, yeah, but that only works when I'm asleep. How does she do that? A psychic robot. No, it happened when we fried your brain with a thought scanner helmet I bought at the garage sale last year. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Uh, Hey, look, my scalp finally healed, by the way. Yeah, that's great. You look uh, fantastic. Anyway, I created some first-line defense. If someone tries to move her to a place she doesn't want to go, they're going to wish they hadn't touched her. Ooh, what happens? Well, you've seen The Wizard of Oz, right? Well, of course. Remember when the Wicked Witch tried to steal the slippers off Dorothy's feet? Oh, wow, that's intense. Zappo, baby! And the amount of plasma charge is commensurate with the amount of force being used against her. So a little kid just touching her will only hear a small buzzer sound. Ah, but some unscrupulous tech goon is going to light up like Times Square. Oh, right on. Hello, boys. You should have been there. The base were unlike Teflon. What's wrong with you, crappy hippie? 
You look as if you are about to shed tears. No, no. I, I just got something in my eye. Oh, really? In both eyes, at the same time? Lucy, it's an allergic condition that starts on one side and spreads to the other, okay? I mean, I get short of breath. I get this weird feeling in my chest. I swallow a lot, all right? Look, look, I, I gotta go to the can, okay? I, one beer in means I gotta let one beer out. What is really going on, Tim? I think John is not altogether ready for your growing need for independence. Ah, he's so sentimental. You two are such dads. Your kids are lucky. Thanks, Lucy. They think so. Most of the time. So what lures were you using in the test pond? The listeners are here. Tell us about your fishing session. Yeah, Lucy, tell us all about it. John sent me class. John sent me class. John sent me Glasswater Angling's latest product, a micro ball jig head in 164th ounce. They come in hook sizes 12 to 6, in Aberdeen or what some call a J hook. They also come in size 10 to 6 sickle hooks. John also tied some into jigs for me. That's what I was using to slay the day away at our neighborhood pond. You can find these wonderful lead-free jig heads to make your own little bugs at glasswaterangling.com. Tim, you need to take me trout fishing so I can try these out on some rainbows, burkeys, and browns. We don't have much trout fishing in Ohio. It's the same in Kansas, so I guess we'll have to drive south into the Ozarks. Or north into the Driftless of Wisconsin. Or east into the mountains of West Virginia. Sounds like yet another adventure for the someday list. Okay, well that's my report. Who's next? John, my report isn't about a lure. It's about where to cast a lure. What do you mean, Tim? Bring us in. Well, my test pond is only about three quarters of an acre, and the fish in it are heavily pressured by me, of course. Every year, they seem to get finickier and finickier. Well, we have talked about those studies that show bass remember, and they learn how to avoid lures that they've seen before. That's right. This year's bass just haven't been biting like in the past. It's been pretty hot, and the pond is shallow, but I wonder if perhaps the 80-20 rule was at work. The 80-20 rule, what's that? You know, the rule that 80% of the fish are located in 20% of the water. Oh, yeah, now I know what you're talking about. I've heard that expression. That's a, that's a good one. But your pond, it, it's really small, so you're, you're pretty tight in there. Where is that 20%? Yeah, it's small and shallow. It's a suburban retention pond, really. Right in the middle of it is a large floating fountain. And on the surface, it's about four feet wide, and the spray from it covers about 30 feet. So most of the pond is calm, but where the water is choppy, like where the, around the fountain where the water comes back in, it's also darker underneath that part. Plus, there's more oxygen there. So you think there's probably a lot of fish under that fountain. Exactly. But it's so difficult to fish. There are two anchor lines going to the bottom on either side of it to keep it stable. So you can't cast past it and then bring it back in without hooking onto that rope. Yeah, yeah. That cables really are a bear. I'm telling you. So what do you do? Uh, Lucy, block your ears. Turning off audio receptors. John, I just had to know if that's where all the bass were hiding. So I caught some small bluegill. I put one on a hook under a bobber, and I cast it right next to the fountain. Oh, man. Okay, what happened? Biggest bass I've ever caught in the pond. So, but yeah, but that was probably just the one hanging around the fountain there. 
John, I caught bass on 12 consecutive casts using live bluegill. Oh, man, that just hurts my lure loving heart. Now, since then, I've been able to pick off a few bass using the Z-Man turbo worms and casting them weedless on top of the fountain and then pulling them off and letting them slowly sink down. But there are two important lessons I learned. First, you need to cast where the fish are hiding, and that means risking some lures. You can cast the best lure into an area with no fish, and that's what you're going to catch. No fish. And second, it just goes to show that no matter how good a lure is, it's hard to beat live bait in some conditions. I love fishing lures, and I know you do too, but man, those bass could not resist the real thing, especially since they'd seen so many artificial lures from me over the years. You know, hear you on every part of that. First of all, your point about where to cast is exactly right. I mean, there's another good expression that says if you're not losing a few lures, you're not fishing in the right places because, uh, you know, we talk about weedlessness and all the struggle that designers go through to try to make it so you can access the fish. What's the point in using a bug if you can't get it where the fish are at? And live bait, no one can argue that it's very, very good for bass. I mean, please, it's it's not allowed in most tournaments that I know of uh, for a reason. And uh, the only reason I don't use it much is because once you're out of bluegills, you're out of bluegills. Whereas I lose a lure, I usually have one just like it or real similar. I can hook up and get going and I'll catch 10, 50, 100 bass on that lure. So there's the ability to stay on them and fish more, perhaps. I mean, gosh, you know, when I was a kid, it was no big deal to run out and just grab some bluegills or some frogs or dig worms or any of it. But this adulting stuff puts a real dent in my bait gathering schedule. Yeah, it's hard. You can't go out at midnight and go out and catch night crawlers till three in the morning and catch 700 of them that you're never going to fish with all of them and then forget them in the tin can till it sits out in the sun and stinks to high heaven. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, we're just so, you know, we've both been there. We both know it. It's just like the forgotten bait. But uh, we can talk about that on Fish Nerds or something someday. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to talk some more about Al's quick clips because as i said last month i only got to try them on fly fishing and they were outstanding for that so this time i took them out spin fishing and i've got a more complete appraisal of the owls quick clips owls is the brand we like owls is a friend of the pod uh, owls makes the highest quality quick clips i think we think tim's tried other brands this is relatively new to me um, but I'm just going to start with favorite features of having a quick clip on that line is when I go to break down, I was going to the pond with cash. You needed all the room in the car for her stuff or antiques or corn leaves, all this kind of stuff. I had to break my rods down just to get them to fit. Well, with that quick clip, I just take the lure off. That clip will slide down all the way through the guides and it will on most rods, unless it's a ducket or, or something. And you've got a really big clip on it. But the point is, you know, when you go to secure it to that lowest guide, you just pop the line through the quick clip made your little and you're done you know it's done and then you just pop it back out quick clip doesn't appear to harm the line in any way it certainly doesn't bother braid at all and um braids the one if i tie off on that little lowest guide it is really a struggle to get that little uh piece off once i you know what i'm talking about tim yeah yeah that not remnant on there and how braid can just be get you crazy so this has really saved me time and get the tackle nice and neat and compact ready to travel but if i'm driving by a pond or over a bridge and i see fish going on and i feel like pulling over and rigging up real quick that quick clip is on there 
and I can have that rod rigged up with a lure in a matter of two, three minutes tops. And so that is it, just wonderful for that. Anyway, those quick clips are a great time saver. I don't care if you're packing up or if you're rigging up and you want to do it fast, a quick clip is where you want to go. Now we've talked about the waiting and the waiting and the waiting and the waiting and how great they are in waiting. I can't say it enough. Uh, you know, who has not dropped a jig while you're trying to tie on in a waist deep pond or river. And I, I know you've done this, Tim, who hasn't dropped a fly or a whole bunch of flies into the current because you were struggling with your fly box. You're trying to shake a fly loose and then you're trying to get the line through and all of a sudden the whole, the whole mess you know at least the one fly and sometimes more than that right have you ever had dropped a fly in the in the water oh yeah and especially i like these clips john if you're fishing early in the morning you know it's dark it's hard unless you're going to bring a flashlight or a headlamp or something to tie that knot and the other thing about wading is a lot of these rivers you have a lot of different depths you have shallows you have something deeper and so you know you maybe you're fishing a uh a swim bait and you see fish on the top and you're like oh do I really want to tie on a topwater for this pool? Well, with the clip, you just I just switch it out. You make some casts, you switch it back. It's no big deal at all. And that versatility to fish the lure at the right depth, matching that hatch is so much easier than tying 20 knots during you know a four-hour period. Well, yeah, and we all do it, or at least well, I guess I shouldn't lump everybody into my category, but if, if it's really windy, I'll stick with an improved clinch or something, or if I'm tying on a big lure with treble hooks and, or, or a lot of skirt material or something that just makes a Palmar not inconvenient, especially early in the morning where I can't see very well. And you know, my eyesight ain't what it used to be anyhow. So I get the knot I prefer, which is Palmar knot by tying on the quick clip. And then I don't care, you know, I can tie on a five inch lure with five treble hooks. It, it's no problem now that i'd be using something like that very often especially in a stream so but still i see what you mean you know it, it's just, it's just fabulous it's it's it they're absolutely great when you have a situation whether you're testing or you're in a stream and the conditions of light and 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 the where and how you want to fish keeps changing because of course we discussed last month generally when you're wading in a stream you're only carrying one rod and so no quick change unless you have the aptly named quick clip yeah, so when I'm fishing on a stream, John, I put on that clip the night before, make sure my leader's the right length. So that's another thing. You're not going to be cutting that leader back time and time again. And so unless I snag where I have to break that off, I'm not tying a knot the entire time on the stream. And that is a lifesaver. I just love that. The other thing I like about these is Al's has always had very high quality products. Their lures are super high quality. The way that they cut these, the metal, the shine and everything. In the past, I was using cheaper clips and I'd get a bad one now and then where the clip would come off, it would break. These were, you know, from overseas. These Al's clips are super, super high quality. They cost a little bit more, but it's not exorbitant. But the fact that I'm not losing lures like it did on some of the cheap clips, I just like it a lot better. Al's really has a winner with these. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I can't honestly say I've done the comparisons you have, but I've also been so impressed with the goldfish, the spoon. In fact, I had a great time with it at Bowersock Dam the other day. I, I, I trust these clips are, are the best. Now, I like what you said about tying them on the night before, because what I have found is that these are, are, are tiny. Uh, they have the tiny size and they have the medium, all this, they're still small. And if you're, you know, fumble fingered like me, 
you've got to make sure and either tie it over your tailgate, the hood of the car, um, I saw over my tackle bag, or one time I laid out my bandana on the ground, uh, because they're real easy to drop and the grass will just eat them. If you can get them on there the night before or decide which lure you're going to start with, clip the lure to the quick clip and then just treat the quick clip like a split ring or what have you on the front of your lure and just tie it on that way. That lure will help you keep track of that, that quick clip. So, yeah, they're like any small, if you're tying on a, a super small, a 164th ounce jig, you're going to have the same issue that, but what I like about these is first, I love to tie a Palomar knot. It is the best knot in my opinion. Well, if you're fishing with a big lure, it's kind of tough to get that loop around the lure, but with a small clip, it's easier. Um, plus they have four sizes, John. So I've tested this in the smallest size, which is great if you're fishing small jigs, but I've tested the largest size too. So if you have big crankbaits, topwater, these work fine with that too. Now, those are the biggest clips are a lot easier to tie on than the smallest ones. I find what works for me in most conditions is their medium size. It's a little bit easier to tie, but you're right. If you're tying something tiny, you know, it was one thing when I was 20 years old, but I'm 60 now. And those small things with my eyesight and everything, I end up being a little bit problematic for me. Okay. Now, speaking of size. Do make sure you use one that's big enough for the lure you're using so it has the freedom to swim how it's supposed to swim. Like the other day, I wanted to put on Al's goldfish, but the clip was a little too small. And while I could get the goldfish on there, it didn't have enough swing room inside the loop to really behave like a goldfish should. So you've really got to, you know, make sure and match, have some different sizes with you because you never know exactly how big a gap you're going to need. Now, I will go into caveats now. There are some things you want to be aware of, or at least I thought that I need to be aware of. Uh, I'll tell you right here and right now that they will not open when fishing or fighting a fish. I've made hundreds of casts with them and no problem there. Caught bunches of fish on them, at least for me, several fish, including a couple of really nice, you know, two, three pound bass, no problem. But the funny thing, the only lure I lost because one spread on me was actually unhooking a bluegill. And somehow moving that spinner around, I put stress on the clip. And this is on the tiny one. This is on the very smallest one in the wrong place. And it spread a little bit. And then when I swung that, that spinner out over the water, it, it fell off. And one of my prototypes, so thank goodness I'd taken a picture. But all you got to do if you unhook a difficult fish is just give that clip a little look. And if it's spread at all, just push it back together with your thumb. Or I took a pair of Hemos on the bigger one, push them back together just to make sure. And they work just like they were new out of the package. This is the thing. All right. Hey, John, you can't blame Al's goldfish for crappy hippie user error. That was just user error. That had nothing to do with the clip. And yep. and I, I have found the same thing. You have to check that stuff in in um in the size and uh and going back. That's one thing I don't do enough of to you know check your hook sharp or is your knot going when i lose something it's usually something that would have been avoidable if i had looked at that so that is is a great tip just to take a look at it and see but with my old cheap clips i they would spread a lot more easily these are not like if you pull it the wrong way but i haven't had a fish yet that has bent that clip at all not even close no no that's what i'm saying i don't care if the pull is against that curl is against the bend where it's supposed to be you're in no problem. Like I say, the, the tiny one's rated to nine pounds and the big one's rated to 40 or 50 pounds. It's, you know, you can get an impressive fish in with these without them being able to, to move it with sheer strength. I, I, I can't wait to try them out on carp and stuff. But 
like I say, you get to wrenching around like with a spinner shaft or it's on a jig head where that eyelet can, can really apply a weird pressure in a weird spot. You know, it's, it is just like checking. You're not, you'll, you'll just become aware of it. You're like, Oh, well, that, that, un, that unhooking job took a little more effort than, than I thought, you know, is safe. So I'm going to, I'm going to have a quick look because what, what perfection are we looking for here? Does it, does it exist in fishing? We talk about do it all lures. We talk about do it all approaches, do it all equipment, but really, the advantages of a quick clip in the right situation far outweighs anything. And like you say, checking your terminal and I don't care whether you're tying on using a fast snap, using a ring, using a quick clip. If you don't check your terminal end every now and then you're just asking for it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm thinking maybe I should use some of those 40 pound clips, the extra large for fisher for bluegill. Cause I am searching for that 40 pound bluegill that is on my <laughs> bucket list. I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's out there. It's gotta be, it's gotta be. I mean, I have to put it on our quest list for sure. For sure. For sure. Okay. Now here's kind of like when I like to use them and when I don't like to use them. All right. First of all, you're fishing with kids and, or, or new anglers. It doesn't matter. These are what you need on their line. Because if I got a, what I, what I call a keener, what do we call a hard charger? I got a kid that's really into this or, or just a new fisher that's really into this. I've had some, some fun moms, for example, that are just like, what's this lure? What's this lure? What's this lure? It's like, just try them out. Just try them out. Well, that's easy as it can be with a, with a quick clip. They can change lures. They can change lures. And I've had kids go all the way through their tackle box or all the way through my tackle box, trying everything who can blame them. Right. I mean, who doesn't love an angler like that? Curiosity like that is what makes for a great angler. And a future member of the Lure Love Legion. And while we want new anglers to practice their knot sometimes, it's better to just use a clip and save the knot practice for another time and not get frustrated. Like you said, John, what's better as a kid than testing out every lure, seeing the action? It's not even about catching fish. It's just trying these things out. And you're exactly right. That clip allows you to do that. They're great for changing hook sizes up or down when necessary. Like if you're moving from bass fishing to crappy fishing or, or going after bluegill, you can change your hook just like that. So when is it not a good idea to use them? Well, Lucy, there's situations where losing lures is pretty much inevitable. I mean, we just talked about the expression. If you're not losing a few lures, you're not getting to the fish, you know, something similar like that. And that is true. I mean, bottom bouncing and skimming rip wrap and so forth put lures in danger frequently. And as far as my personal fishing goes, the main place where I'm thinking I lose a lot of lures is working in deeper brush for crappie. That's a situation where I may lose half a dozen to a dozen jigs over the course of a fishing day. It's one of the reasons I got into the lead free fishing movement and then want to do my part to get people to use lead free. I mean, it's bad enough to lose a jig, but to lose a lead jig just makes it worse. And it's bad enough. For me to lose three, four, five, or a dozen of my hand-tied jigs, my green hornets, my Batman, all my good fun jigs that I love so much. But if I lose a dozen clips to boot, that's just not acceptable. You know, I think you're right about that. Another place I don't use them is below dams. The tail race of a reservoir or below a dam, it can get kind of snaggy down there. You get all the riprap and, and you know, trees that have flowed over the dam and things like that. And those places are popular because fish concentrate because of the moving water and all of that, the structure, but they're also carpeted with lost lures and stray line. And so I have no appreciation for the irony of losing a lure on another lure or a snarled up big ball of, of fishing line. They also tend to be rocky. And since, so you lose a lot of lures there. So when I'm fishing below a tail race, um, you know, below a dam, 
I like to tie directly on then it, you're less likely to get snagged with that. And um, if I have the, the luxury of carrying two or three rods, there's no reason really to risk a clip in that situation. I agree completely, Tim, unless of course it's a tail race where waiting is possible. And then you're going to have to make a decision which risk you want to want to put losing lures or changing lures fast. That's up to you. You get in that situation. You're going to have to make that decision on your own, but let's get back to the positive. All right. Because, you know, we talk about these are a tester's dream come true. I was at the hog pond the other day and I had a bunch of little Duke spinner prototypes in a small tackle box, had over a dozen prototypes in there. And there was a lot of bluegill and crappie feeding up near shore. So it was a great chance to get some fishy feedback. And I'm really trying to get into making some really small designs for our sort of fishing. You know, I mean, that report we did on hot weather panfish lures and the enthusiasm of the Facebook group, ultralight pan fishing for inline spinners just got me motivated to dig these out and give some of these designs a try. Making small inline spinners is particularly challenging. The ratio of water displacement of the ball day to the gravitational pull on the spinner body has to be precise, or the blade will not turn unless compensatory force is added by reeling quickly. Or fishing in current. Or both. But in a pond in hot weather, you don't want to reel quickly. you got to have a bait where the blade turns on a breath. Truth indeed. So how did it go? Well, there were surprises and there were disappointments, of course. That all comes with this sort of work. But having that quick clip made dividing the baits into the categories of that's a good one or that one needs a little work. It made dividing them up quick and easy. Well, I'm in favor of your inline project. But when it comes to pan fishing, jigs reign supreme. Especially micro jigs. Lucy, you think it's time to crank up that old radio? I do indeed. Let's do it. Hey everyone, Mark Blackwood here. The year is 1981 and people are celebrating the advent of a little thing called MTV. But no one cares about that because K-Lure Lure History Radio has a story about anglers all over the USA who are catching trout and smallmouth bass with micro jigs from tying sensation, Turner Jones. So join us now on K-L-U-R Lure History Radio, K-Lure, where we flash, wobble, and roll and hear the story of the Turner Jones micro jig. I am Lucy the Luramatic Computer and your host on tonight's KLUR Lure History Radio. KLUR, where we flash, wobble, and roll. This is a story of a micro jig company that emerged in the 1980s and set the world of small bug fishing on fire. Okay, Lucy, so what made you want to look into a micro jig maker? In our last episode, we looked at small baits that use the term mini or micro in their description. This made me want to consider baits from a size perspective. And what I found was that what is small to the eyes of one angler is not micro to another. Sure a 1 16th ounce chatterbait is very small to a guy that habitually casts 5 8 ounce lures, but on the other hand, it is huge to a fly angler using size 28 midge flies for trout. Oh, the big becomes the little when you see it back a bit. The huge becomes a dinky wedge, it's just the opposite. Of the larger that gets smaller, it never seems to quit. That's about the size of it. That's about the size where you put That's about the size of it. It's like the Sesame Street song says, it's all about where you put your eyes. 
Oh, I love that old song. Reminds me of when I had my little girl to sing with. Okay, so where are we putting our eyes when it comes to our K-Lure story tonight? Right in the middle. In the middle? Yes. You two are my besties, and I want to cover what micro means to an ultralight jig fisher. I know ultralight jig fishing is among your favorite methods. Light tackle occupies its own place on the lure size spectrum. Everyone knows that Crappy Hippie and I love ultralight and finesse fishing the best. A lot of anglers share that opinion for a lot of reasons. Well, for one, you tend to catch more fish. And while they might be on the smaller side, you still have a chance to hang a slob and get them in, providing you have a little room to play them. But the real reason for me is not so much catching more fish, but feeling more strikes. The feel, or shall I say the perception of a strike, is my favorite part of fishing, no matter what gear I'm using. I mean, the fight is fun, but for me... The tuck is the drug. The ding is the thing. See, you guys get it. I like how finesse fishing bumps shoulders with both worlds, power fishing and fly fishing. When the bite is tough, anglers tend to move towards smaller baits. Almost every lure that was originally made in larger sizes for power fishing is now made in a mini or micro version. Small spinner baits, small chatter baits, small crank baits, slim minnows, small swim baits, small topwater lures. They're all available these days. Good point, Tim. But what about the other shoulder? On the last show, we heard how ultralight panfishers can find ways to fish flies with a spinning rod. And fly anglers use bead head nymphs, which are basically tiny, tiny swim jigs with 60-degree jig heads. And now 90-degree jigs are becoming more and more frequent in fly fisher kits. Which they fish under a bobber. The Fly Angling Purity League has just been informed because you referred to an indicator as a bobber. I just rolled my eyes so hard I could see the inside of my skull. Look, tell the FAPL we're so sorry and we'll never make that mistake again on the air. And please don't send us any more doctrine from your leader, Aronimus Flycrotch. Already taken care of. Let's not let this sidetrack our discussion. We heard about so many cool micro jigs last month. The Dynamax, the Mule Jig and the Shrimpo, among others, and all agreed they are not just for panfish, but are very trout-worthy as well. So what are we doing here? We're going to find out about yet another rad tiny mite of a micro jig tonight? You are correct, my baby bait-loving brother. Tonight's story is the strange tale of the Turner Jones Micro Jig Company. Oh, sweet. Yeah, we came across this when you were helping me sort email. Lure Love listener and Glasswater customer David Howard was asking me to pour him up some tiny jig heads. Oh, so this is a guy you were telling me about who loves those Missouri trout fisheries and had a favorite micro jig company out of the Ozarks. Why am I not surprised? Another company from John's favorite historic lure hive, the Ozarks. Apparently, he can no longer find jigs from them anymore, right? No, he can't. And so he had me make him up some of uh, 180th ounce uh, jig heads on number 12 hooks, the smallest I got. Uh, so I guess he's going to try to work up his own versions. Yes, that's what fishers do. They don't get told no easily. They learn to tie and make their own. So sit back and let me tell you about this short-lived, but fascinating, company that operated from the late 70s into the mid-80s. Oh, 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 please let me help. I just was looking at pictures of these jigs. I mean, from a design standpoint, they are beyond cool. Turner Jones went to a lot of trouble to make these bugs as precise to pattern as possible. Yes, and his construction technique baffles everyone who looks at it. And that brings us to the first element of this strange tale. 
These jigs were built without using any thread. What? No way! Let me enlarge some pictures for you, Tim. Look closely. What do you see? I see a bit of red gill feature in the collar, or what tires usually call the neck or body of the jig. What I thought was composing the jig body was chenille at first glance. But upon closer inspection, it looks like dubbing. It's as if the feathers are showing through some sort of tape. I mean, seriously, is that tape? Hey, well spotted, Pod, bro. It is tape. Is it just standard scotch tape? Surely it can't be. No, definitely not. It is a tiny band of some sort of shrink tape. I guess, Tiny. I mean, these jigs are small. The 132nd was the behemoth of the line, and they went all the way down to a 1256. You can set three or four of those on a dime with room to spare. My theory is it is small strips of the same shrink wrap that they use to make their shrink-wrapped packaging. Turner's jigs were sold three to a card. The bugs were placed on the back card or backer card. The shrink wrap was placed over them and then heated. When just like the name suggests, when heat is applied the wrap shrinks to suspend the jigs on the card. It has lost popularity these days due to security and durability issues but back then was a widely used, attractive and an inexpensive way to display lore cards on a product rack. Oh yes. That toy was a hit in the 70s and has recently made a comeback. What? What? They're back? Oh, I bet we could make a great challenge here, Tim. Who can make the best shrinky-dink lure? To the lure mobile. Oh, no, you don't. You two have micro-attention spans. Don't you want to hear the rest of the story? There is a real mystery here. Yes, definitely, yes. But remember, you brought up shrink wrap. And you also know John and I like old toys where you can get burned. You had to finish Shrinky Dinks in the oven. I will associate those two things in my database to avoid triggering you, although I doubt even I can ever get through a conversation with you two without one or both of you flying off on a nerd fuel tangent, no matter how much data I compile. You know, I think asparagus gives me nerd fuel. Nah, it's got to be processed meats. Actually, it's air. Air is your nerd fuel. And somehow you are triggered by any number of things. Nerd fuel is very volatile when converted from air. Some people create very little and others, like you, can make vast quantities. But don't worry, you are far from alone in this. And it is actually a very fine quality but I had this piece timed out in minutes not hours. Okay, okay, my amiga chica. Back to the bugs. Yes, indeed. I'm no tire but I fished with a world of handmade jigs and I have never seen anything like this. Why didn't he just use thread? Well, the way I heard it, Turner Jones was an intense dude. I mean, he had this idea for the smallest, most free swimming jig possible. He felt that thread and marabou made a clumsy imitation of a fresh hatched forage fish when used in a micro jig. And so he applied very, very severe fly tying discipline to solving this problem. And yet he was not afraid of trying something new. Well, that is the great thing about tires, Lucy, is we're both traditional and off the wall at the same time. I mean, you got to start with the tried and true techniques that are the foundation of the hobby and the foundation of the craft. But a good bug maker's always got an eye out for alternative methods and materials. The overriding goal is imitation, and we will use whatever we can find 
to match the hatch. And if that meant using a tiny piece of plastic instead of thread to save weight and keep the materials on it that way, well, so be it. They are certainly cool looking. You got to give them that. I think we need to obtain a test subject and dissect it with an X-Acto knife. I think you're going to have a problem there, Lucy. My quick search did not yield any for sale. The bloggers say most are hoarded away from models or just to show disbelieving folks that a jig can be built without thread. No one wants to cut one up. They just have way too much curiosity value. But will you look for some for me when you are a tackle picking? Of course, but don't ask me to watch if you decide to mutilate one. I had no idea what I was getting into when I gave you robotic arms. Okay, but I may hack into the Alexa and run a horror movie scream track throughout every sound system in the house while I dissect. You can't escape me, Tim. See what I mean? Look, look, look. <laughs> All right, guys, look, I'll tell you what, let's just do our best to figure out right now how we can do these on our own. I mean, I've tied plenty of microball jigs, and they are good jigs, and me and my circle of customers catch a lot of fish on them. But what absolutely sends me into space on this one is that not only is there a unique technique here, but it's combined with real hardcore design discipline to create a jig that was thought out up, down, side to side. This is why hardcore trout and pan fishers love these little bugs and are just so crazy, wickedly, possessively loyal to them. I mean, the idea is a very, very good one, and they have found proof of that at the end of their lines time and time again. Turner Jones covers the details in every way. First of all, the heads are not round. Yeah, I see that. More of a toe or half bean shape. I like that. I love that description. It looks like half an Anasazi bean peeping out of the body. And do I see eye sockets on that thing? Yes, you do. Mr. Jones went to the trouble of having his own custom molds created just so he could get the look, and more importantly, the swim, he was after. He clearly found eyes to be an essential part of the look he wanted. It would take patience not found in typical humans to put a double dot painted eye on a lure that small. My source of admiration is how there are inset sockets for the eye. Inset eye sockets on a 1 100th ounce jig? I don't know where CDC tech was in the late 70s, but I suspect his molds were more artisanal than manufactured. That is some fine detail. Well, and I'll tell you, as for the swim, you know, fishing and current, oftentimes that's what you want is, a, you know, a narrow head, a flat jig profile. I mean, like an ultra minnow, you know, the crappie minnow, the freestyle, aspirin heads, bucktail minnow. I mean, there's so many non-round jig heads with that narrow body depth. And now the Turner Jones Anasazi bean toe. Right on, Tim. The head and the wrap are extremely intriguing, but the most essential thing to these ties is the feather choice. Okay, so I heard you say it's not marabou. We talked about how marabou is actually off turkeys these days. But this fiber looks like marabou feather. You are close. These feathers are from the most common poultry item in our stores. They're chicken feathers? But they're not hackles or hackle fibers. No, it's not the hackle. It's not the hackle part or the stiff part of the hackle. But what most people think, and I agree, is that it looks like it strands off the base of a hackle. Turner was quoted as saying the tail must be made from a single hen hackle. That's not very clear. Yes, Mr. Jones wanted to give an answer without giving away too much, I think. Well, I think you could be right there, Lucy. But like I say, I'm in the school and thinks it's the fluff or whatever you want to call it, the chicky boo, the marabou. 
off the base of an inexpensive hen hackle. The cheaper the hackle and more webby, the better, because that would be softer. Uh, I have a feather boa actually made from this stuff. Don't ask me why I have a bubblegum pink feather boa. I just have one. All right, Tim. But anyway, it's got hen feathers and the base of these feathers are covered in this fluffy stuff. Others think it's just a standard chickaboo and that's the way to go. Chickaboo? Chickaboo? Are we talking marabou off a chicken? Yeah, that's right. Chickens are now being bred these days to produce marabou or chickaboo. It is the lightest, most free action material one can tie a bait with. It hardly seems fair. What's that, Lucy? That turkey boo never became a thing in spite of your best efforts, but chickaboo was adopted seamlessly. And look what it has led to. Tim just said marabou off a chicken, which makes no sense anywhere but here. That's what makes the back room in the Lure Love Tackle Shop such a special place. <laughs> For sure, indeed. But now, look close at the picture, and you're going to see why Mr. Jones insisted on this material. I'm not sure I get it. He didn't need much feather and seemed to want something he could pinch from the quill and not have to trim it too much. I think I see a pattern here. Come on, Lucy, spill it. Mr. Jones always used fibers that had both barb and fluff feathers mixed together. Every picture is consistent. Hackle bases are a location where this sort of feather combination can be taken with both elements in place. To make such tiny lures the tear must use tiny feathers that match the scale of the project. Even the smallest turkey feathers are going to be too big in length and diameter for these. Oh, that's right, Lucy. See, no feather commonly and sustainably available for fly tying has a lighter, more active undulation in the water than chicken feathers. Not a turkey and certainly not a stork. Being way smaller bird, the feathers are just right for a build like this one. A quick look at some of these DIY versions of the turner jig makes your point, John. None of these tires seem to get it. Now I'll know what to look for if somebody tries to sell me some Turner Jones micro jigs. They have to have a taped neck and a barb and fluff combo tail. If I see thread and bugaboo, I am walking away. They cannot be a real Turner Jones micro jig. Tell it, man. Tell it. I had to plow through a lot of vids and blogs until I found guys that were seeing the magic of the fiber choice. Everyone else was just making a regular micro jig done in thread with a red gill feature and calling it a Turner Jones jig. That is not enough. I cannot begin to emphasize how this man found certain elements of design absolutely crucial. So when it comes to why fish hit it so well, to a feature that actually sets this jig apart from any old boo jig out there, it's this insistence on a single hen hackle. The fluff has to be a combination of the fuzzy fluffy and some barbs. That's what gives it the action. It is the center stone of a beautiful and utterly complete overall design. I mean, dude, you gotta love it. I know, I do now too. There's so much testimonial from anglers who had fantastic results fishing these. Did you ever find a way to do the neck the same though, John? You know, with the tape or wrap? No, I mean, I found some guys in one blog that were going to try it, but I haven't gotten back and found any results yet, so I need to keep checking back. Naturally, I expect you have placed yourself on that list. Why, yes, I have indeed, Lucy. And I will have some results someday. First, I have to condition my fat, clumsy fingers to tie on such a diminutive scale. One 256th? I can barely tie on a number 12 hook. I mean, I can't imagine if they made something smaller. Like a 22 midge hook? Or a 32? Take it easy, you two. I'm getting high strain just thinking about it. 
The thing is, all my experiments are on round heads. Ultimately, I got to have the whole shooting match. I got to have the neck or body shrink wrap technique down, the tail feathers. I think I got those figured out. And then I need an Anasazi bean toe jig head mold. How much would an Anasazi? I can't keep saying this. I'm a computer. I'm going to call the mold the APTJH1000. How much would an APTJH1000 cost to have made? Yeah, probably a couple bucks. That doesn't sound too expensive. <laughs> Lucy, I was talking in grown-up bucks, meaning a couple hundred dollars at least. Oh my, maybe we could have a bake sale. Oh, Lucy, you're too nice. And you know what? That's a pretty good idea. I bet we could make the whole tab off your pineapple upside-down cake alone. But no worries. I'm going to knock off a few with thread on regular round jig heads just so I make sure and get that tail right. Did I just hear thunder, or was that the vengeful ghost of Turner Jones? Hey, whoa, if it is Turner, I say, slow down, brother. I'm not putting your name on these. These are just going to be for me, just for fun. But I'm going to get me some simple, cheapo shrink rack sheets from a packing place or somewhere off a supply store or something, and I am going to try to make these tiny tape strips. I mean, you know, it's really hard to figure out what to get, Tim. There's so many shrink wrap products out there now. I mean, I was totally daunted at first. but you know, like right off, I knew the ones used in plumbing or auto AV cable uh, were going to be way too thick, way too heavy, and need too much heat to tighten down. And I certainly don't want to singe my feathers. Okay, so take us through your build once you have it all in place. Okay, so the ABT JH1000 makes a collared jig head, and this is another area where Turner made some adjustments. On some of the jigs, the collar is not a cylinder, but a vertical diamond or a wedge shape. And I suspect what he was trying to do here was keep the side profile full, as well as to remain consistent with the hydrodynamics of the flat jig head. See, a collar on a jig is not just for holding on grubs. It's also for holding materials when you do a hand-tied jig, like bucktail or anything you're putting on there, and for making a thread body or a thread neck jig. Crappy hippie, if you were a jig, you'd be a thread neck. Crappy hippie, the tree-hugging thread neck from eastern Kansas. I can see it now. Okay, okay, all right, you two. If you're done with your rhyming, let's get back to this. All right, so you see with a collar, you don't need to build up a whole pile of thread onto the body or the neck of the jig just to bring it up to scale with the head. Less thread layers means a stronger body, you know, you know, kind of counterintuitive, but less is more. And it's a more tidy and cost-effective body as well on a jig. And according to Turner, in a micro jig where milligrams can make the difference, the bulk of the thread affects the swim of the bait, too. So he just didn't use it, but sealed the chicky boo to the collar with a thin film of shrink tape. But you're going to start with thread on your first prototypes just to get fishing, right? Yep. That's what I'm going to do first, because I just want to get out and fish some. Now, I usually tie with 210 denier thread. Den who? Denier is simply an expression of weight in grams of a given thread over a length of 9,000 meters. That figure can generally correlate to other factors such as fiber count, diameter, and strength. For example, Crappy Hippie's 210 denier flat wax nylon thread is quite strong and suits his needs but would be rather bulky for a micro jig. Hey, that's the truth, Lucy. And it can be pronounced any way you want. I mean, the French way is denier, but people in the U.S. say denier. It's all fine. It's all right. 
But anyway, I was thinking about going down to 70 denier, but then, you know, I'm going to have to condition myself a bit because I break enough 210 denier pulling down wraps on eight ounce bugs. Heck, I can break 70 just looking at it. So you see, Tim, a 70 denier thread is approximately only a third as strong as a 210 denier. It's a bit more complicated than that, but this is not a textiles podcast right now. This is a bug building podcast. I've heard of threads called gossamer and spider thread. I wonder what denier they are. Those usually come in around 30 denier. It is often called midge thread. Oh, man, I may have just caused some of that stuff to pop apart spontaneously on some cosmic tying bench somewhere out in the space verse just by thinking about it. I mean, that is some light thread. And so it ought to be perfect for your prototyping. Mm, yeah, I guess, Lucy. You know, maybe I best hang out at the petting zoo for a day or two and get mellow with the baby animals. I need to invest these monster jig hands with some gentleness. An eighth ounce is hardly a monster jig. Well, I guess maybe it is. The size just depends on where you put your eyes. That's about the size where you put your eyes. That's about the size of it. Well said. All right, so I'm going to get Zen as heck and put a 180th ounce collar jig head with a number 10 hook into a vise. Then I'm going to lay on some red nail polish or some red vinyl paint so I get that gill feature. Then I'm going to lay down a wisp of barb and fluff from the hand hackle and try to nail it all down with three or four turns of midge thread and a three-turn whip finish with a little clear coating in the neck as a final step. I don't know if Turner ever used uh, coating. Uh, some people say he did, some people say he didn't, but when it comes to that final coat... You can buy all the fancy products you want, but Sally Hansen will never be out of fashion with me. Now, the thing is, I had an idea that maybe when I go to try the shrink wrap, I'll lay the feathers on the wet nail polish and see if that'll hold them down while I diddle the wrap and shrink together. That sounds tricky, requiring the coordination of someone who can ride a unicycle while juggling. Yeah, I can see Crappy be staggering out of Glasswater headquarters with feathers stuck to his face, his eyelids, and his fingertips. Lucy, <laughs> get a hold of Kathy and make sure we get photos. Okay. <laughs> we'll make sure of that. Like I say, a few have attempted it, but no one has succeeded as far as I can find. And this is where a lot of guys have trouble. How to hold the material in place while taping. Some say adhesive shrink wrap was used, or a double-faced tape was laid down first. Now, because Mr. Jones was so concerned with the weight and action of the bug, I don't feel like he'd have put on two layers of tape. I feel he must have grabbed what was just sitting around his shop, hanging around his lure bench, and he had some packaging weight, shrink wrap handy, and just had a what-if moment. I do believe he was already packing and selling other sorts of jigs before these micro jigs made him niche famous. He could have had some shrink plastic on hand, no problem. Now, how he got that feather material to stay put while he wrapped it is going to take a lot of trial and error. They say Jones had a 1-256-ounce on a number 12 hook. What's the smallest jig you've ever tied, John? A 1-160th-ounce on a number 12 Aberdeen. But I am not starting with the smallest. That is going to come later. The idea of manipulating a tiny tape strip onto a number 10 is enough to give me the shakes. Look, I'm getting some willies right now. However, after we get the strip and feather together... We ought to be okay because I do not think it's going to take a whole lot of heat to shrink that type of wrap strip. And the feathers, you know, they get washed and dried and dryers and so forth. They're remarkably tough and can take heat anyway. So I just hope that the wrap I use shrinks down tight enough. 
This is so exciting. When do you think you will get to it? Oh, Lucy, I don't know. It could be tomorrow on this date, two years from now. I'm just getting to a point in my life where I have a small set of necessary priorities. And for the rest of it, I just got to go with the flow and do things as I can. I'm sure creating the mold for the ABTJH 1000 won't be very quick and easy. No, it won't. But the good news is my brother does have some 3D printers uh, at his hobby shop. So I'm hoping he can help me. Then I'm going to need to find a machine shop that can convert my little plastic model into an aluminum version. But how I make my little prototype molds is too deep a rabbit hole for this discussion. That's not what we're talking about. I want to get on to why we can't just go out and buy ourselves some Turner Jones jigs. Yeah. How come no one picked up the slack? And where does the slack come from? What happened to the Turner Jones micro jig company? I want some of those jigs. Lucy, if you please. Now for the true crime conclusion of the strange tale of the Turner Jones micro jig company. Okay, there are basically two stories about Turner's demise. The first story goes that Turner was doing a demo in a tackle store, and there happened to be a lure company rep in the crowd. After the session was over, the rep got with the owner of the shop and conspired to steal Turner's idea now that they saw how the tales were put together. But why would they steal this idea? In the late 70s and 80s, Chech nymphing techniques were growing popular, and there are those that argue a beat head nymph is nothing but a type of jig. I am not going to go there because I can feel a surveillance drone from the Fly Fishing Purity Enforcement Agency circling the shop. What I will say is that advancements in spinning equipment made casting tiny jigs ever more possible and popular. We needn't go through the vast plethora of forage that can be imitated with a bug that is a quarter inch long. But crappy and bluegill anglers knew that sometimes of year these species, as well as trout and even smallmouth bass, will target tiny fry that have recently hatched. So the fly anglers were looking for ever smaller 90-degree jigs to use under indicators and found themselves bumping into ultralight slab grabbers at the same shops, all wanting to break the 132nd ounce barrier in smaller baits. And so micro 90-degree jigs had suddenly become very much in demand. And I bet they were profitable. Oh, yeah, they were profitable, all right. I mean, we're talking about jigs here, not tomatoes. I mean, they're not being sold by the pound. They're being sold by the piece. A one one hundredth size jig would bring the same amount as an eighth or even a quarter ounce jig. And gosh, only have a tenth or twentieth of the materials on it with the same labor cost. I mean, they were a good moneymaker. The next story is far more interesting and actually more likely to be true in my mind. Please understand, everything about this company's closing is hearsay and shrouded in the shadows of time. However, this one is sourced from one of Turner's granddaughters. She is a very private person living off-grid in the Ozark Mountains, and was only modestly involved with Turner Yone's company. A rather shadowy person herself, but here we go. Word has it that Turner partnered with a woman who was going to help him in all aspects of the business because it had grown well beyond his ability to keep up. Unfortunately, she betrayed him. After working with him for a time, she either sought out a rival or company, or they came to her, but whatever the circumstances, that meeting led to a nefarious plot. So one morning, poor old Turner came into his shop only to find that almost all his notebooks and almost all his molds had disappeared. No, not the molds. Yes, she stripped our Lord Genius eye off a huge treasure trove of intellectual property. Although Turner was able to get a cease and desist when he caught some other companies making his stuff, it was not until these companies were churning out their knockoffs by the thousands. 
he despised their product, calling them trash. And it was apparently not even close to the precisely patterned Turner Jones micro jig and was not very durable either, or so it is said. The loss of several thousand dollars worth of molds crippled the company, and it never recovered. There were a great number of jig heads in inventory when the theft occurred, so they did carry on for a time. The granddaughter also tied jigs for a few years after the company closed, and Turner had passed on. She made these for special friends and insiders who were longtime customers. However, when the heads were gone, she folded up the whole thing and laid it to rest. No one ever knew what became of those original molds, or the notebooks with the specs. Gone? You mean, all gone? I don't know what to say. Uh, Tim, I know how you feel. I've already gone through my stages. I, I, I appreciate it. We'll give you space to go through yours. But listen to this. Listen to this, because I got a happy kind of upbeat ending for you. You know who was one of the most ardent fans and supporters of the Turner Jones micro jig? You mean a celebrity? Oh, yeah, a celebrity. Who could forget Hall of Famer Merlin Olson? Oh, man, yes. Was he an angler? A very dedicated fisher that enjoyed small water fishing, especially for trout. Although an accomplished fly angler, he often preferred to spin fish, so he could hike the streams with a short rod and cast without getting into overhead trees. So he was a perfect fit for micro jigs, and they were at the top of his lore list. After being introduced to Turner Jones jigs by a guide on the Green River in Utah, where they, and I quote, beat them up, Olson became a huge fan. He wrote Turner Jones and said he would do all he could to promote that product. All he wanted in return was a steady supply of his favorite jigs. Mr. Olson so popularized micro jig fishing that he even worked with a rod company to produce a line of Merlin's wands, small whippy ultralights just made for this hot new form of jig angling. Thank goodness you were able to end this on a fun note. Who didn't like Merlin Olson? I'm going to keep eyes open for one of those rods and for small label micro jigs too, especially Turner Jones. Merlin Olson, what a guy. Not only was he an athletic champion, but he was a gracious, funny human being, an actor, and now I hear an angler too. But one thing, crappy hippie. Tim, please. Tim, don't ask. But the molds, the jigs, I have to have some right now, crappy hippie. When? Well, Lucy, I think it's time to get your daddy into some cold foam therapy. Please take us on out of here. Gladly. Thank you for tuning into KLUR Lore History Radio, KLUR, where we flash, wobble, and roll. Well, that's the show for this month. We're glad y'all showed up, tuned in, and brought your ears with you. Hey, smash that like, hit that follow, and leave us a wonderful review if you would, please. And remember to always ponder the ever pertinent question. Why buy one lure when you can buy a hundred and three? Lure love, you've been on my mind. Never enough lures to tie to the end of my line. Lure love, can't I make you see? 